Good morning. The Bible reading today is from Luke chapter 7, verses 36 to 50, and that is found on page 839 in the Pew Bible. Luke chapter 7, verse 36. When one of the Pharisees invited Jesus to have dinner with him, he went to the Pharisee's house and reclined at the table. A woman in that town who lived a sinful life learned that Jesus was eating at the Pharisee's house. So she came there with an alabaster jar of perfume. As she stood behind him at his feet weeping, she began to wet his feet with her tears. Then she wiped them with her hair, kissed them and poured perfume on them. When the Pharisee who had invited him saw this, he said to himself, if this man were a prophet, he would know who is touching him and what kind of woman she is, that she is a sinner. Jesus answered him, Simon, I have something to tell you. Tell me, teacher, he said. Two people owed money to a certain money lender. One owed him 500 denarii and the other 50. Neither of them had the money to pay him back. So he forgave the debts of both. Now, which of them will love him more? Simon replied, I suppose the one who had the bigger debt forgiven. You have judged correctly, Jesus said. Then he turned toward the woman and said to Simon, Do you see this woman? I came into your house. You did not give me any water for my feet, but she wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You did not give me a kiss, but this woman from the time I entered has not stopped kissing my feet. You did not put oil on my head, but she has poured perfume on my feet. Therefore I tell you, her many sins have been forgiven, as her great love has shown. But whoever has been forgiven little, loves little. Then Jesus said to her, Your sins are forgiven. The other guests began to say among themselves, Who is this who even forgives sins? Jesus said to the woman, Your faith has saved you. Go in peace. Uh, friends, good morning. We do uh, return to our Jesus Through the Eyes of Women series. And just a reminder, we have our, our board up there. And in your bulletin, you have a little slip. If God impresses some thought upon you that you'd like to share and place on that board after the service, you can do that. If you can't find a blue tack, we think it's somewhere, you can fill it out they pay, and put it in, in the little box on the way out. And then we will place it on the board later. Let me pray that God would speak to us. Lord God, we thank you that you speak very clearly through the scriptures, and as we look at this story in the scriptures today, that you will give us a, a better appreciation of who you are, your grace, your mercy, and you offer forgiveness to all who repent. We pray in Christ's name, amen. Friends, today we do look at a story of forgiveness. Uh, in fact, it's one of my favorite stories in the Bible, I don't know about you. And it's the story of a sinful woman who was welcomed into Jesus' kingdom. And Rebecca McLaughlin uh, writes, We'll see how Jesus treats women who've been vilified as moral trash and how he uses this example to expose the moral failure of the men who judge them. We'll see how Jesus welcomes prostitutes into God's kingdom while the self-appointed gatekeepers look on in horror. And see how the door to everlasting love with Jesus is wide open if we only come to him. Let me take you to Matthew 21 for a moment. The chief priests and the elders were questioning Jesus' authority while he was teaching in the temple court. And he says something almost uh, 
offensive to the Pharisees. He says, what do you think? There was a man who had two sons. He went to the first and said, son, go and work today in the vineyard. I will not, he answered, but later he changed his mind and went. Then the father went to the other son and said the same thing. He answered, I will, sir, but he did not go. Which of the two did what the father wanted? The first they answered. And Jesus said to them, truly I tell you, the tax collectors and the prostitutes are entering the kingdom of God ahead of you. For John came to you to show you the way of righteousness, and you did not believe him. But the tax collectors and the prostitutes did. And even after you saw this, you did not repent and believe him. And Rebecca McLaughlin continues to write, and I'm going to read a, a fair section of what she has to say in the introduction, because I think it's helpful as we get to the sermon. It says, Jesus' words are scandalous. The tax collectors and prostitutes were the apex of sinners from a Jewish point of view. Conversely, the chief priests and elders would have seen themselves at the top of the religious tree. But Jesus tells them bluntly that the Roman sympathizing swindlers and prostitutes, the very people they'd vilify, are entering God's kingdom ahead of them. Why? Because the prostitutes and tax collectors are repenting of their sin. Indeed, Jesus speaks as if the chief priests and the elders should be following their example. She writes, Jesus' words concerning prostitutes are radical to a degree that's hard for us to grasp. His fellow Jews saw prostitutes as sinners to be avoided at all costs, and certainly not as people who might walk right into the kingdom of God. But in the wider Greco-Roman Empire, Jesus' comment was, if anything, even more disruptive, because Jesus is recognising prostitutes as valid human beings in and of themselves. And she goes to describe what it was like in that world. It says, in Rome, and some of this may sound crass to you, but this describes the situation. It says, in Rome, men no more hesitated to use slaves and prostitutes to relieve themselves of their sexual needs than they did to use the side of a road as a toilet by Tom Holland in his book, Dominion. Sex with prostitutes was not seen as immoral, but as a legitimate and necessary outlet for male lust. Indeed, as historian Kyle Harper explains, the sex industry was integral to the moral economy of the classical world. But prostitutes themselves were seen as almost literally worthless. The average cost of sex with a prostitute was equal to the cost of a loaf of bread. And as Harper puts it, the brutal exposure of vulnerable women rested on a public indifference so vast that it lay invisibly at the very foundations of the ancient sexual order. Nobody cared about prostitutes beyond the services they could provide. And therefore, with Jesus coming into the story, he introduced two tectonic shifts. Firstly, he loved and valued women, including prostitutes. Number one. Number two, against the norms of the empire, he upheld mar faithful marriage as the only context for sex. When Jesus speaks, he completely revolutionizes the understanding of sex in the Greco-Roman world. He says, this started a sexual revolution more daring than the revolution of the 1960s, but in the opposite direction. The modern sexual revolution offered women the right to commitment-free sex, a right that 
any man has been assuming for centuries. She goes on to say, not that it's improved life at all. But the sexual revolution that was triggered by the rise of Christianity within the Roman Empire cut out men's sexual freedom and called them to the kind of faithfulness in marriage that had previously only been expected of wives. This meant that women could no longer be seen as expendable objects of male lust. Rather, sex only belonged in marriage, the permanent, God-given, one-flesh union of a man and a woman. Matthew 19, verses 4 to 6. And Christian husbands were to love their wives with the same kind of sacrificial love that Christ has for his church, Ephesians 5.25. She writes, Is it any wonder that women flock to the church of Jesus Christ and continue to do so today? In light of that historical context, let's now come to the story. I call it Risky Love by a Repentant Woman. The setting is this, that Jesus' reputation is growing. He's a traveling preacher. He's a healer. He's loved by the common people, the sinners, the outcasts. He speaks their language, the language of the street. He taught them how true faith affected their daily life. People were crowding around him. Anywhere he went, the crowds were there. The Pharisees were the religious establishment. They revered, even feared, as men of unattainable holiness. They kept the ancient traditions. They were separated from the, the rest. They were the orthodox guardians of the faith. They did not like Jesus. Jesus threatened them, and it wasn't long before they wanted him dead, as you see in your, in your Bibles. On one hand, you have Jesus with a growing reputation. On the other hand, you have the Pharisees who do not like him at all. There's going to be a constant battle between these two groups of people. You read your Gospels, and here we come to another battle in a house of a Pharisee. And they began expressing their contempt for him more civilly at the beginning. They invite him to dinner conversations. Come, Jews, well, come. If you have a message, come to our dinner party and speak to us. But they come and invite him to set him up. And the Pharisees, though, expressed their distinction from impurity through an arduous allegiance to ritual purity rules. They would have all these ritual cleansings, so they were right to gather. But once they had completed their ritual cleansing, they wanted the outsiders to see what purity was like. So as they had their dinner inv invitations, they'd invite others to look in and to listen in. What are they talking about? Look at us the Pharisees, the separate ones, the holy ones. Look at us and you will understand how God wants you to live. And their conduct at meals was set to be an example to the community. There's no carousing, there's no coarse language, there's no frivolous discussion. They're religious societies, they're formal places, religious debates take place. And they often invite a visiting speaker. So here they are. They're saying to the outsider, watch, look in, listen in, and find out what authentic religious people are like. But something goes wrong in this dinner party. It says, when one of the Pharisees invited Jesus to have dinner with him, he went to the Pharisee's house and reclined at the table. The only meals where people reclined were formal banquets. And any formal meal was an occasion where the traditional roles of guest and host were expected to be acted out precisely for concerns. 
Everyone knows this rabbi is coming. Everyone knows Jesus is coming. The religious leaders are there. The people are there. And they're watching Jesus walk into this place. But something doesn't happen. He should be greeted with a kiss and much fanfare. It doesn't happen. When I sit along the tables, and, uh, and I don't know how they do it, because I went out to this Middle Eastern feast with our men's home group recently. Now, mate, you sit on the floor and try to eat. Man, my back was out, my hips were out, and I got up and sat on a stool. <laughs> but these guys, they lie down, the food's on the ground, and they lay down with their left hand, and so they're able to pick up food and eat. And they lie down, and their feet are behind them. The servants normally would come behind them and wash their feet. Cover it with water. Dry their feet, having come from dusty streets. But something is missing in this scene. There is an intentional insult to the guest. Firstly, the host failed to wash the feet of Jesus. Secondly, there was no kiss of greeting as he comes in. Nor was he anointed with oil. It's less offensive, that, that was common practice. From Middle Eastern cultural perspective, the failings of the host are glaring omissions. Everyone notices that they don't do what they're meant to do. Jesus just plays along with the game. They've invited Jesus to humiliate him, to mock him and to embarrass him. I remember a situation when I was younger, I was a teenage boy, my or maybe even younger than teenagers, and my father had a falling out with one of the uncles. But, but all the uncles still get invited to another uncle's house for some special name day celebration or a birthday. And as young kids, we, we turned up, and as you turn up, and it's a scary function turning up to a Greek function with all these older uncles and aunties, and you're young, you walk around, and they're all sitting in a circle. So we started to go around and to greet each one of them, Hello, sir. Hello, uncle. Hello. And he shook a hand. And I remember walking, and there was the other uncle my father was not speaking to in the circle. And we were so confused because we weren't sure what we should do because we weren't having relationships with that uncle that we didn't shake their hand. We bypassed him. Everyone noticed. There's a few conversations after that event. I said, Dad, it's your fault. You didn't tell us what we should do. <laughs> It's like that, but far worse with Jesus. Everyone knows. But there was a woman watching all of this. She felt it, and she's going to do something about it. Literally, a woman of the city who was a sinner was there. Probably a prostitute, therefore poor, known by the people, for she was from that town or city, maybe. Men have used her. Well-known woman of the city, a sinner. She had heard that Jesus had gone to the Pharisee's house and she went along. Verse 45 implies she had arrived at the same time as Jesus just before him. And the assumption in the story is that she has already met Jesus and been changed by him. Keep that in mind. She's already like following Jesus. She's come to worship him. She's come to bring um, perfume to him. She says, clearly heard him preach elsewhere. Notice he loves women. He welcomes even prostitutes. That he gives them a second chance. He forgives their sins. And she turns up. And then she is triggered by what she sees. 
Everyone else sees the mocking of Jesus, the insulting of Jesus, but she stands by the side, but she can't handle it any longer. Why no kiss? Why don't they wash his feet? Why no oil? This is the rabbi. This is the one who's brought me forgiveness and value and meaning. Why is no one doing anything? And she's totally overcome. She can't kiss him. Can't leave his feet filthy. Can't let him be treated like a dog and be a nobody. And her devotion, her gratitude and anger mix. She forgets she's in the presence of a circle of men who are hostile to her. She runs in. Can't kiss him, but she can kiss his feet. Can you imagine? They're in a crowd and there's people and, and religious leaders and the crowds outside. They're all watching and Jesus, the rabbi, the religious guy, and this woman is at his feet in the middle of this religious setting. She's now kissing his feet. She breaks down, literally washes his feet with her tears, it says. From deep, deep comes a, 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 a tide of emotion, of release, of sheer joy, pouring out like a torrent, someone has said. Simon springs to his feet, thinking, oh, I've got Jesus now, doesn't even know who's, who's at his feet. Touching him, kissing him, this sinner off the street. What will she do now, this woman? She has no towel. She didn't come prepared to wash his feet. That was the servant's job. She lets out her hair, hair from the dusty streets, and she starts to dry his feet. And letting her hair down was an intimate gesture that a peasant woman only allowed her husband to observe, Jewish writings tell us. In the Talmud, the Jewish writings, it's indicated that a woman can be divorced for letting her hair down in the presence of another man. Simon is outraged. Can you try and picture Simon's face at this point? The host of this religious gathering? There's a mess happening in his house. A woman at the feet of Jesus, hair out, perfume everywhere, tears everywhere. Everyone is looking. His calculated snub of the rabbi is not proceeding according to plan. And he says in verse 39, he said to himself, if this man were a prophet, he would know who is touching him, what kind of woman she is, that she is a sinner. See, that's why he was invited to test him. Is he a prophet or not? Is he from God or not? We get to an insight on where his heart is at. But you see, Jesus is a prophet because Jesus sees clearly what Simon does not see. The very crux of the episode, the very point that Jesus would later make. Jesus proved he was a prophet by the very fact that he did see who this woman was. He sensed her repentance. He felt her relief and joy of being forgiven. He saw the outpouring of love from a repentant woman. Simon, on the other hand, what does he see? The defiling caresses of an impure woman, a prostitute at work. That's what he sees. He doesn't see with the eyes of grace. He doesn't see with the eyes of God. He sees with the eyes of judgmentalism and criticism. But Jesus is a prophet. He sees things that God sees them. Simon doesn't. I was moved by this story in Mike Frost's book called Jesus the Fool. 
He tells a story, Mike tells a story of a young woman with two kids that he knew who had suffered at the hands of a violent husband. And his church at that stage many years ago was trying to reach out with a message of love and forgiveness and value and dignity with this woman. But she was too afraid to leave this abusive husband. Then one day after hearing a sermon on finding inner strength and new life in following Jesus, she responded to God's love. And Mike writes, as she walked to the front of the church to express her newfound dignity, I think there's a bit of an altar call as she walked forward. You could see her chest puffed up with respect and her face glowing with hope. She began a new life that day. So there were two responses to this woman walking barefoot down the aisle of the church. For many, there was great joy with what was happening to this woman. However, some commented they were hoping that next time she came to church, she would wear shoes. They felt it irreverent to be barefoot in the house of God. When some people looked at the woman, they saw repentance, faith, hope, joy, salvation, and new life. When others looked at the woman, they saw a woman who had no shoes. One group saw through the eyes of grace, God's eyes. The other saw through the eyes of formalized religion. So it was with Jesus and the Pharisees. So what would Jesus say? What would Jesus do? Simon, I have something to tell you, he says in verse 40. Ten men owed money to a certain moneylender. One owed him 500 denarii and the other 50. Neither of them had the money to pay him back, so he cancelled the debts of both. How about that? Just cancelled them. They couldn't earn earn anything. They couldn't earn their salvation. They couldn't couldn't pay it off. They needed mercy. They needed grace. He just cancelled them. They were levelled in their need. Neither could pay So he treated them as equals and cancelled the debts. The same grace is extended to both. Simon is now questioned by Jesus. Now, which of them will love him more? Oh, the one, I suppose, who had the larger debt cancelled. Simon had misunderstood the human scene in front of him, but the logic of the parable is inescapable. And love in that parable is a response to unmerited favour, a response to pure grace. This woman has been forgiven by Jesus and she pours out her love in response to that forgiveness. Remember the scene. A banquet plan to humiliate Jesus has been hijacked by Jesus and this woman. It's not what Simon had planned. You probably run parties like that. And all of a sudden, Jesus looks to the woman. And this is important in verse 44. He turned to the woman and said to Simon, picture that, Jesus is laying down. He turns to the woman and speaks to Simon. And I think the way he addresses, how, keep in mind the words, how they're spoken here. Because I think if he's speaking to Simon, was he looking at Simon and speaking to him? It may have been a little bit sharper or harsher. Simon, I want to tell you this. But he's looking at the woman. He says, do you see this woman? Of course he can. Everyone can see her. I came into your house. I can picture Jesus just looking at the woman. And she's looking at him and maybe looking down and looking at Jesus. But he's looking at the woman. Because he wants to lift up the woman. He wants to commend the woman. He wants to honor the woman. He looks at the woman. 
I came into your house, she did not give me any water for my feet, but she wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You did not give me a kiss, but this woman, from the time I entered, has not stopped kissing my feet. You did not put oil on my hair, but she has poured perfume on my feet. And in speaking these words to the woman, he lifts her up. But he criticizes the hospitality of the Pharisee. Culturally unacceptable, but so important here. But he had a greater message. Her many sins have been forgiven, as her great love has shown. She has been forgiven. It's in a perfect passive, a present condition result from a past action. She's been forgiven. And now she has demonstrated that forgiveness through her love. And just in case the people don't understand that, he says to her, your sins are forgiven. Don't let anyone think you cannot be forgiven. Don't let anyone think that you're too far from God. Your sins are forgiven. Simon might not have accepted the salvation of the woman, but Jesus declares that she is forgiven. And the other guests then say among themselves, verse 49, who is this who even forgives sins? So Jesus, again, is elevating himself. He's the one who forgives sins. He is the one who's come from God. He is the only one who can forgive sins. He's not a rude and impulsive young man who insulted his hosts. He is the son of God who enters human history to offer forgiveness. And friends, the cross and resurrection will show us the grace of God in its fullest measure. Jesus dies in our place so we can be forgiven, have a new start in life. We're going to remember that at the communion table in a moment. Jesus promises us eternal life. It doesn't matter who you are or what you've done. All are called back to repent and believe in him. Verse 50, Jesus says to the woman, your faith has saved you. Go in peace. God shows his grace, we repent and believe, and we find new life in him. Go home today with your eyes focused on the woman at the feet of Jesus. No one else would stand up for him, but she did. No one else moved a foot or a hand. So overcome with the forgiveness that Jesus brings that she could not keep herself from acting in love towards Jesus. McLaughlin says, how do we see Jesus through the eyes of this repentant sinner or prostitute? Three things. We see him as the only man who welcomes them, not for what he can get, but for what he can give. We see him as the one who does not count their history against them, but who knows each detail of their past and welcomes them into his stunning future. And thirdly, we see him as a magnet for those who feel like scraps of human metal on life's junk heap, picking up the broken and abused and drawing them into this kingdom of love. Friends, may we see as Jesus saw and welcome all into his kingdom. Amen.